This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket. A to Z with Matt Fonslow. I am Matt Fonslow, and I am very, very excited to welcome to the podcast a guest, a shop owner out of Colorado, who really I only know through social media, primarily. And I've read a lot of his posts in various pages and groups in I just find them very intriguing. I agree with a lot of what he says, almost everything. We seem to be on the same page. So who better to have on a podcast interview than somebody that you already agree with? His name's Nathan Bryant. He's the owner of Auto Visions in Englewood, Colorado. He's been at this a long time, and he has very interesting takes on things. Nathan, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. All right. So we talked about all the good stuff before we started recording. So I'm not sure what's left, but uh, I guess I would want to start out with something that I see in a response of yours. I think it was somebody talking about opening up a shop or the direction that they would want their shop to go. And your, your response I found really fascinating because when you started, when you bought your shop and had ideas of what it would become, those ideas changed or what what it is isn't exactly what you set out to do. And I'm not implying that's a bad thing at all. I don't think you would either. No. And, you know, I bought my shop about almost six years ago now. And I had this idea. It was already a Honda Toyota shop that I was purchasing. And I'm like, I figured, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get the, all the factory scan tools. I'm going to be programming modules. I'm going to be doing the high tech stuff. Working on um, working on cool stuff. I'm going to be the go-to guy. And I purchased a TechStream, um, purchased a one-year subscription. And that first year that I had it, I used it twice. That's it, twice. I would sometimes go a week and a half, two weeks without picking up a scan tool. What it turned out was that the customer base that I had and the customers that came back to me were people that maintained their vehicles. So. Their, their cars didn't break. I didn't have a bunch of tow-ins. And I found myself that what I was really doing was I was replacing struts and tie rod ends and brakes for soccer moms on Honda Pilots. It's a lot more profitable than I'm um, doing tough diagnostic jobs also. So, yeah, what I thought I was going to do, it wasn't. didn't work out that way. About two years in, two and a half years in, I was looking at credit card statements that were way higher than what my bank balance was. You know, it wasn't exactly a, a great, great first two years for me. It forced me to really look at, you know, what was going well for me, what was going right, what was, you know, what did, what wasn't working. And one of the, one of the first things, decisions I made was I don't need a yearly subscription to, Honda Tech Info. I don't need a yearly subscription to Toyota anymore because that's money I could better spend somewhere else. And basically, I had to really kind of just check my own ego. And instead of trying to force the business into what I wanted it to be or what I thought it should be, accept it for what it was and take what was working well and concentrate on that and do that more. So I had 
before I bought my shop, I had managed the shop for, you know, almost 10 years. So I felt like I had a really good understanding of how a shop works. It's still different when you're the owner. No matter how much, how many classes you take, no matter how much training you have before you buy a shop, it's different when it's yours. Would you say like mostly psychologically in that you have a lot or all your skin in the game uh, that that weighs heavily on it? Or uh, is there something else that you noticed? That's a big part of it, I think, is that I'm a big baseball fan. And they always talk about a lot of times there's this pitcher that is really good in the eighth inning. And then he falls apart if you ask him to close the game and pitch in the ninth inning. Because there's something psychological about the guy could pitch in the eighth inning when he knew there was a safety net when he knew that there would be somebody else that could come in and fix what he screwed up. If you're the manager, you're the general manager, even if you got an absentee owner, there's still somebody else that has a checkbook and there's still somebody else that can basically tell you, no, don't do that. When you're the owner, you can make whatever dumb decision you want and there's nobody to stop you. And I think that was a bigger issue for me than like the money aspect of it, because I actually was more stressed out when I was responsible for somebody else's money as a manager than I was with my own money. I think you can understand that. Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking about what you were saying earlier and you know, I don't own the shop, but I would say my ego and will right or wrong. And I think you could make strong arguments on either end of that is that, I willed a lot of stuff into existence that, you know, like you said, had the ideas of doing certain types of work. Well, that's what I wanted to do. So that's where I put all my energy into. And I think, I think I lucked out that it's kind of worked out, but it could have backfired. It could have backfired bad. Yeah. Like I'm not responsible really for the check checking account. So you know, I was kind of gambling with someone else's money. Yeah, and it's it's different. I mean, I don't really have a, I don't really have an opinion on good or bad on it. It's just different. You know, I started out as a tech, a service writer, as a manager, now I'm an owner, and yeah, I've seen pretty much all the different sides of this industry by now. And it's as you go from one job to another things change. Um, I wouldn't really say that they get easier or harder or better or worse. They just change. And I think that's something that gets lost on a lot of, <laughs> a lot of technicians is that they don't understand the change that happens when you go from being the technician to being the service writer, when you go from being the service writer to the service manager, or when you go from being the technician to the owner, and then all of a sudden you're the, Technician, the service writer, the service manager, the janitor, the accounts receivable, the accounts payable, the bookkeeper, and the uh, yeah, the repairman. We, we were talking right before before we started on the air. We were talking about how seems like a lot of times some technicians and owners and managers all wait until they're like really really pissed before they go have a conversation with somebody that's bothering them. And I I think a lot of that comes from they just don't see things from the other point of view. And yep. how could you? I mean, if you, if you haven't been on that side of the counter, you haven't been on that side of the counter. The same thing like every once in a while, 
I had to get a windshield put in my loaner car the other the other day. And I got to experience the sticker shock that our customers get to experience when I pay $800 for a windshield. Because it was a 2019 and it had to have ATIS calibration and it had to have a higher quality glass than what you're used to putting into a 15-year-old Toyota. You know, it's just, and it's good, it's good to see that. It's good to see the other side of the counter. It's good to see the other perspectives. I had an owner who, when I was managing for him, he said he said a lot of things that stuck with me. But one of them was, if it wouldn't put me out of business, I would put each technician up on the counter for a week, just so they know what you know what you're dealing with with customers, promises, and you know that that end of it. But he was afraid with the technicians he'd have. They you know they'd go tell somebody to go tell somebody what they wanted to tell somebody. <laughs> that wouldn't be good for the reviews. Yeah, before it's uh, too late, I'm going to rattle this off. The uh, Napa Expo will be held July 18th through the 21st at the Venetian Convention and Expo Center in Las Vegas. Stay on the forefront of the latest changes and technologies and industry trends. Registration opens April 2022. Not enrolled but interested in attending? Contact your servicing Napa store for more information. It reminds me of what you're saying is... um, this is way, way back when I first started and I was just, you know, a tech with a, a mouth. But one of our customers at the shop worked for a, um, a, a scale factory, like a, a weight scale factory. And he thought he worked uh, behind a desk. He was more uh, of an engineer. But that company, one week a year, you did somebody else's job. So an engineer is got caught down on the you know assembly line and people on the assembly line ended up answering phones and trying to do engineering type type work you know obviously they weren't engineers so there's some stuff they couldn't do but they had to like you're say like you're saying they had to try on some different shoes they had to try some different footwear different perspectives and how they learned not just to respect the other positions but also like you're saying little bit of different perspective. You know, you're sitting on the line. Well, why would they do this? This is so ridiculous. And now I got to go spend a week with an engineer. Okay. I see why they did that. That makes perfect sense. And then the engineer on the flip side down on the line going, why in the world did we do this? Why did I design it this way? This is <laughs> pathetic. What am I doing? And they go back and they make changes. And I think the, there was a, the, I think it's fairly old plant in, uh, I think it was a Ford factory in brazil and it's fairly automated but they also everybody wears the same uniform and at lunch everybody is encouraged to not sit amongst their direct co-workers but to you know in you know to mix it up and to uh kind of sit with people at different areas of the factory and that would foster evolution of design change the line completely, stuff like that. So I don't know. I agree. It's, it would be hard to pull off in an auto shop, like a small auto shop. It'd be really, it'd be rough. I don't know how you could yeah. weather I mean, that financial storm. <laughs> yeah. I remember, remember as a dealer tech, I worked at one dealership. They would have a monthly luncheon for the whole dealership. Then you would end up with all the technicians and 
one table, all the salespeople would be at another table. Yep. And it would just be, it would be the new car sales would be at one table. The used car sales would be at another table. And then like, nobody liked parts. So <laughs> they were, <laughs> yeah, they're on an island. <laughs> and, and it was always, you know, I, I'm sure somebody had an idea that they were going to bring everybody together and make the company more like a team. And it failed miserably. There wasn't actually any commitment to seeing anybody else's point of view or listening to anybody. It was just, um, just surface and the boss would talk at you and that was it. You, you know, we were in the service department and, you know, we'd go grab some free food and go back to the shop. That was kind of our, take on it um i think something like that could work but it has to work with the right management because there has to actually be a commitment to listening and and you have to be willing to be uncomfortable i think if you're the management you have to be willing to be to hear things that make you uncomfortable and you have to be willing to in my experience as an employee was there wasn't very many owners or managers that were willing to do that. You know, I owned my own shop because when I moved out here to Denver, I ended up not being able to find somebody that I was willing to work for. And to be fair, I think I did a point in my life where I was never a very good employee, but I became less of a good employee. (laughs) There's always a, there was a post I saw today or yesterday, I think it was in, would it be a red flag on a resume if somebody's resume was a mile long and they only worked four months at a, at a shop? Well, that was me through my entire 20s. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> it's a red flag. But I don't know. Um, you know, I worked for, worked for some good people too. And, and obviously, I'm still in this industry after 25 years, so I can't really say I got a whole lot of, I got a lot more good than I got a lot of, than I do bad with it. I do think, you know, I look at the lack of people that are coming into this industry and I look at the lack of people that are staying in this industry. There's obviously some issues. Yeah, I, I guess I don't want to sound overly pessimistic. And that's not, you know, it's not doom and gloom. I think there's a lot of really bright, bright things in the future. But I just find the biggest hurdle is the gen- the um, general value of the stuff that we service that, that I feel is like a big hurdle that I have. I don't know how to overcome. I I haven't figured it out yet. Short of continuously demonstrating the value of our services or what we provide charging as much as we can charge and, you know, giving the best experiences service experience we possibly can. But man, you know, you look at some of these other professions, the other, um, service trades, if you will, this, when they're after one of your, you know, best and brightest and the stuff that they're working on, you know, brand new or, or used, you know, 15, 20 years old piece of equipment that is worth six figures and it can't be replaced for less than six figures. They will spend the money uh, much differently to service it and maintain it than somebody that's driving around something worth ten, fifteen thousand dollars and can be replaced. Uh, you know, I don't know about so much now with with the shortages, but they can replace it rather quickly, and they can show up at a bank and get the money pretty much no problem. It's a hurdle. I don't. I'm not sure. I don't know. 
No, there, I mean, there, there's a limit to it because we work on a depreciating asset and we work on a replaceable asset. You know, somebody's got an 18 or 20 year old car, car's worth 2000 bucks. We can write up an estimate for 6000 and they can look at it and go, you know what? I'll take that 6000 I'll put another 2000 in it and I'll buy a 10 year old car. And then the other thing that's always been a, a challenge in this industry is that if you have a customer base that can afford to pay high dollar repairs, that's the same customer base that can also afford to go buy a new car. So I think to some extent, I think we're largely we're our own worst enemies because we tend to look at things from our side of the counter. We don't look at it from the other side of the counter that much. So one of the reasons I became a mechanic was I was broke and I had to fix my own car. So for me, at that point in my life, it was, I'm not going to spend a hundred bucks to fix it. I can probably do it for 20. And you move on and you think about it. How many, how many mechanics do you know that are cobbling together 15 or an 18 year old car that, you know, the reason why they're doing it is because it costs them 300 bucks and not 1500 bucks. So we need to learn to look at it. It's not what we value our profession at. It's what does somebody else value the profession at? I will pay money. I will pay good money for people that can do things that I can't do. Web design, my lawyer, my accountant, these are people that could largely charge me just about anything they wanted because I can't do it. And if the only way that I have to judge whether I'm getting value or not is, you know, does, is the IRS coming after me? Nope. I guess my accountant must've done a good job. And do I, how do I judge price? Well, the only way I would do, be able to do it is to call three other accountants and get some, get some estimates. And we handicap ourselves too often because we, we discount our value before before we even let somebody else give us give them a chance to discount us. So, and then, you know, I think the the solution to that really is just it's more training, it's more education, it's it's getting people into it's getting techs that open shops into management classes. It's getting them to places like Vision, where they're going to learn something be taking a class from Cecil Bullard or Aaron Stokes or whoever, they're going to learn even more sitting at lunch with another shop owner. And I think that ultimately the more training that the more people get, that the better, the more professional the industry becomes, the better. And that's going to help solve some of our problems with technicians. I was talking to, listening to a person who's, well, she's the head of Lincoln Tech, and she was saying that, you know, you need to start talking to kids in the sixth grade about becoming auto mechanics. There's a ton of money that's being spent on promoting STEM classes right now. They're getting these kids in fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, telling them to go to college and become engineers. Yeah. And we're kind of... I feel like our industry is always a little bit behind in a lot of that stuff. And we're like catching the leftovers when they're senior year in high school or when they're 20 years old and they've dropped out of college, as opposed to 
getting them on board, getting somebody excited about fixing cars when they're before they can even drive one. But yet, it's a fun and exciting field. It, I mean, it's really is. It's I can't think of too many other jobs where you can go to work every day. You don't know what the day is going to be. You don't know what you're going to be working on. You, Even if you think you know what you're going to be working on, it doesn't work out that way. Yep. And there's always something new to learn. There's always, I was always attracted to the puzzle. You know, I like Same to solve. Here. So, and that's why, honestly, that's the only reason why I'm still in this field after 25 years is because the puzzle's still fascinating to me. I'm sitting in my shop right now. I have a 1991 Oldsmobile Cutlass and a 2021 Honda Civic. Would that be a 3-3? Yep, 3-3. It stalls when coming up to a stoplight after it's warm. That was one of my favorite engines to work on. I don't know know why. I think everything was easy to get to. Yeah. I I made a ton of money off those GMV6s. You know, and the guy described, I don't usually work on cars that old, but it's a good customer of mine and he described it and he said, Oh, it's coming up to a stop and install. I say, yeah, you need a torque converter solenite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, why? Cause 20 years ago I replaced two or three of those a month. It was just really, really common issue, but you know, seeing the way the technology changes, um, going from, you know, my, when I started out doing drivability, that was feedback carburetors. Now, you know, yesterday I did a 15,000 mile service on a Kia Nero electric vehicle. Nice. So the, the technology keeps changing and the problems are fun. Solving the problems are fun. And I have to believe that if we can, if we can articulate that and if we can get that across to, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth graders, you know what, maybe we get somebody excited about this. Because the job's not the same as it was 20 years ago. It's not anywhere near as dirty. It's not anywhere near as greasy. You know, we need to be software engineers sometimes now. The expo everyone has been waiting for is back. The 2022 Napa Expo is coming to the Venetian Convention and Expo Center in Las Vegas, Nevada from July 18th through the 21st. It promises to be the biggest and best Napa Expo yet. Gear up for four days of business building excitement from general sessions and seminars to an enormous trade show that promises more suppliers, more space, and more products than ever before. It's all intended to help keep your business on the road to success. Industry experts will lead dozens of seminars throughout the day and general sessions will feature speakers from a variety of backgrounds who encourage you to strive for excellence and inspire you to keep your eye on the end game. As for the trade show... With 200 Napa suppliers and 555,000 square feet of exhibition space, you will use every minute of the doubled trade show hours to see everything there is to see. Visit with Napa suppliers about new products and equipment, as well as the latest diagnostic and repair solutions. There will be areas dedicated to brakes, tools and equipment, heavy duty, and the Napa store and Napa Auto Care, making it easier for you to locate suppliers on the show floor. The Napa Auto Care booth will showcase the cornerstones of the Napa Auto Care program and its elements, including branding and marketing, employee solutions, business management and development, process improvements, and gold certification. In addition to business, there will be plenty of fun at the 2022 Napa Expo. The entertainment lineup includes country superstar Keith Urban, American rock band The Goo Goo Dolls, 
and the always entertaining Spasmatics, delivering the best songs and cool dance steps of the 80s. In addition to all the learning and networking opportunities, there will be an amazing lineup of prizes with a variety of vehicles from ATVs and motorcycles to cars and trucks. For Auto Care Center owners, 2022 Napa Expo is a can't-miss event. If you are not a Napa Expo package holder and are interested in attending, contact your servicing Napa Auto Parts store. See you at the 2022 Napa Expo. I think that uh, you, you'll hear people's you know, texts or people in the profession that have been around a long time would say that you know years ago you would spend, for an example, 10 minutes diagnosing and you know, two, three hours repairing. And nowadays, in certain situations, uh, you end up spending like three hours to diagnose it to spend 10 minutes fixing it. Yep. And that the diagnosing or the anal- analyzing could be uh, a lot of research. What's going on? How is this supposed to work? What am I, you know, coming up with a plan of attack? And then, like you said, I, I think the kind of the technology we get to use is pretty amazing then too very far too few know about it i mean if you want to get really critical uh about just the profession in general how many how few know the technology available to them to use on vehicles or in their business you know they maybe know that it exists but don't consider bringing it on board you know anywhere from diagnostic stuff service equipment to shop management, you know, just either the shop management system itself, an add-on accessory with tablets for digital vehicle inspections, DVIs, stuff like that. Yeah. So many um, don't, within our profession, don't know about them or much about them. And that might be the ticket to, like you're saying, the sixth, seventh, eighth grader. If you're showing them, like, this is the stuff we use day in and day out. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, it, to me, the, you know, the key of everything is, is education, education, education. And we need to, you know, we need to educate ourselves. We need to educate our own industry before people can go out and, you know, go out and spread the word, so to speak. You know, and I'm not, by no means am I the greatest example of this because I'm still like, you know, I've always been a pretty good drivability tech, but you know, when it comes to things like scope patterns and stuff like that, I'm lost pretty quick. But so I know, I kind of know where my limitations are in some of that, but I've always been good enough and able enough to figure out how the car is supposed to work. And then if I know how a system is supposed to work in my mind, then I can develop a test plan with whatever tools that I have or that I know how to use. And, you know, maybe that needs to get out there too, that there's more than, there's more than one way to do things. And, you know, just if you can learn, if you can learn how a system works, if you can learn what it's supposed to do in the real world, then you can figure out what is missing. And like I said, I, for me, I was always attracted to the puzzle. You know, the, the whole thing for me was the puzzle. I started, I was like, it started being a guy at the shop that rebuilt the carburetors at the first shop I worked at because one guy took it apart, couldn't figure it out and just left it on the bench. And I think I was, I was 20 years old and fresh out of tech school and 
kept walking by this thing day after day after day. And I was in between jobs, didn't really have anything to do. So I just started putting it back together. And boss came by and goes, is that right? I said, I think so. <laughs> it looks like I don't have any parts left over. I say so the same it. thing now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is that right? Um, well, I think pulled, so. Pulled it up to the old Ford truck and fired it up and it ran. And next thing I know, I'm the carburetor specialist. You know, it's the same thing now. We, customer calls me, you know, wants to know, hey, can you take care of my electric vehicle? Yeah, I can do that. Do you have a lot of corrosion out there? No. Okay. No, we're, so, we're rust-free out here. Um, I'll get one little bottle of acetylene. It'll last me for five years. Opposed to when I was working in Michigan or Pennsylvania and it went through it in a week. Because I think we're fairly close in age and I caught the very tail end of carburation. I would get a few here and there. The the Rochester. Uh, yeah, the quad junks. Yeah, both the quad and the dual. And then maybe a few Fords. I think I did. I remember doing one thermal quad on a Chrysler. We didn't really mess too much with the McCoonies. We had vehicles that had Ford variable Venturis, but I never, I don't remember having to do anything with them. Yeah, I don't remember. I remember rebuilding some of the Carter one barrels on the on the older Ford trucks. Oh yeah, like on the four nine. Yeah, yep. I did a few of those. And yeah. other than that, it was a lot of a lot of quadra jets. But like you said, the variable Venturi Fords. I don't. I guess they just didn't break. I remember, I remember one old Chrysler with a lean burn system that came in, and I just, I punted on that one. I, I gave up. And <laughs> older, older guy said, "He goes, don't feel bad. Chrysler couldn't make it run right either." <laughs> so you know, there's, you know, and I think back on, it's so much easier to fix cars now than what it was 20 years ago. For the most part, I mean, just the the technology that's available to us for service information is, I mean, I, I was look, working on this morning, I was working on a, I had an 04 Mercury Marauder and, and the interior lights didn't work. And all of a sudden I'm like, I'm looking at these wiring diagrams. I'm like, half the stuff isn't here. I'm looking at these diagrams going, you know, I, cause I'd gotten used to how much more thorough the service information is on 2012s, 2015s, 2018s. Like every wire is there. Every pin is there. Yeah. And now I'm going back on this 18-year-old car and I'm looking at it and the wiring color that's in the wiring diagram is not matching the wiring color that's in the car. <laughs> and that just used to be a normal, that was just a normal way of doing things. Even at the dealership, we're working at dealerships in the late 90s, early 2000s, and we would still have the racks of bookshelves. And if somebody printed an error, they didn't reprint the whole book. Maybe they would get that little sticker or something, right? Yeah. Or there'd be a couple of pages that were sent in and it's this little thin thing that somebody lost. <laughs> you know, you were kind of, and, and that's probably part of the reason why I am the way I am now with, if I can figure out how the system's supposed to work, I can figure out how to get to the bottom of it. Because a lot of what I learned, even at the dealership, the information wasn't complete. And now it's, I mean, geez, you just go through a flow chart now and, Wiring diagrams are where they're supposed to be. The ohms readings are what they're supposed to be, and the codes, the trouble codes. We have to we have ten times as many trouble codes that are so much more specific than what they used to be. Cylinder number one ignition coil fault is so much easier to diagnose than misfire. 
Right. But again, like I said, the, you know, just the industry changes, the technology changes. And, and I still believe that if we could present, if we could present things to kids at the right age in the right way, there's still kids out there that like to solve problems. They're still putting together puzzles. They're, you know, they're doing it on, they're doing it in computer games now instead, but it's still the same. The psychology is still the same. I think again, yeah, I'm not that smart of a guy, so I don't really have the solution, but why? Well, Cause you're fight. You're not fighting just the kid though. And I don't mean like fighting them to join, but the stigma with the parents. That was you know, the uh, other thing that was mentioned was that, you know, you have to reach the kids younger and you also have to make the pitch to the parents. I, and it's not, it's not just auto repair. I think just the trades in general, unless, unless the parents are like really big fans of dirty jobs, I don't know that they uh, really push their uh, children to, you know, college, college if it needs it, or that's where their interest lies that you're going to need that degree. But the, push a kid towards one of the trades or an apprenticeship somewhere and, and, and learn what, whatever that may be welding or electrician or, you know, auto repair. Yep. They're just not, they're not doing it. Even though I think the evidence is overwhelming that that's where the jobs are. Yeah. That's where the jobs are. And the, you know, the money's pretty good if you're good at it. Yeah. I think the money's good. And then, not that we're going to run into the COVID situation again, but we, we never stopped working. How many other people, their jobs, in some cases, their jobs got better, right? They stayed at home. They're making the same amount of money. And, okay, I get it. But there's a lot of stuff where people didn't know what to do. They're at the mercy of um, assistance or, you know, just getting by, white knuckling it until they could get back to work. That never happened for us. We kept working. There, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you got a little bit of a pause. I think we had a little bit of a pause of like a week as people kind of tried to figure stuff out. And then it was right back. Yeah. The, so the, when they hit, when the initial lockdown hit here, I, my business went, I mean, it fell off the table for about two months. Laid him off. There's not enough work here for one person. There's certainly not enough for two. After two months, I brought him back and, you know, we had, 2020, I grew 30% over 2019. Wow. 2021, I grew 30% over 2020. I mean, the reason why I dropped off for the for those first two months was pretty obvious. All of a sudden, I, you know, I my commute went from 25 minutes to seven. <laughs> there was no cars on the road. And if nobody's driving, then nobody needs to go to the auto repair shop. Pretty simple in some ways. It was nice, though, driving home. Man, it was quick. Oh, I bet. Cause I don't know how you guys deal with it. I mean, seriously, I go hang out with friends in Chicago and they think nothing of that stop and go traffic. And I mean, maybe, maybe if I get stuck behind a tractor, then I got to. <laughs> yeah. I, I have pretty much bumper bumper from the time I leave the shop till almost the time I get home every evening at five thirty. That's just the way it is. But yeah, it was kind of fun there when the first lockdown, I mean, I hit 90 miles an hour. <laughs> No, the car went this fast. Yeah, so the usual, <laughs> the usual twenty-five to thirty. But yeah, you're, you know, you're right. We're, you know, we are, we are very much essential employees. We are an essential business, and it doesn't matter. COVID hits, we keep chugging. September eleventh, two thousand one. September twelfth, we were back at work. 
And, you know, there was never a, never a hiccup back then. Doesn't matter. Natural disaster. You know what? If the shop gets knocked down, yeah, you know, rebuild it. But the industry keeps going. People are going to keep driving. You said something earlier about discomfort as an owner manager. One, you have the environment that, you know, the quote unquote open door policy. But I don't know if that would work anyways. You know what I mean? Like you can say it and it can be true. It can be 100% true. That door is open. You can come in and talk to me about anything, anytime. Maybe not anything, but issues. I don't know if it gets used. My experience is it doesn't, but... Yeah, and I have to agree with that. I I think, I, you know, just from an uh, employee's perspective, a lot of times you just build it up in your head about how this is going to go. Like I have an issue with, you know, whatever it is, my pay. And I'm going to go in, I want to talk about it. And I'm worried that it's just going to be like, yeah, you know what? You don't like it here? Go get another job. See if you can get paid or you get paid here somewhere else. And then having stuck in that decision, like, okay, do I quit? Do I go look? Or, you know, I don't think it's ever come to that ever. But usually you wait and you wait and it builds up and it builds up and it builds up. And then either you get pulled into the office because of your attitude, your bad attitude, or <laughs> you finally do decide to kick the door in and vent. And you had kind of hinted about something a little bit earlier about that, about the shop owner perspective of maybe waiting too long. Yeah, I think, honestly, I think it's just human nature. I think that, I think most people are not good with conflict. We avoid conflict as much as we can until, you know, it builds up, it builds up, it builds up, it builds up. And then when you finally, you're going to have that conversation, you've been rehearsing it in your head for the last two days. Because we all do it. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you're, it never works the way, it never goes the way you think it's going to go. But I think it's just human nature. I think it's the desire to avoid conflict until you literally can't anymore. And I think that the most effective managers and really the most effective people, they're comfortable with conflict. They can go have that hard conversation they can go ask a hard question without it having to be a big blow up, without it having to kick the door down. You know, I, th- I always think about it from on the, the Facebook posts. I've got this technician. He's driving me nuts. He spends 20 minutes in the bathroom or 30 minutes in the bathroom. By the time you're venting on Facebook about it, about a mechanic's bathroom time, that's not the real issue. There's, there's a bunch of other things that have been building up and building up and building up. And you as the manager were too afraid to walk up to the technician at his toolbox and say, Hey man, your, your hours have dropped by 25%. What's going on? And that's really, you know, it's one thing to say, I have an open door where really, I think the, it's the responsibility of the manager because they're the one that has the power. It's up to them to walk out that door, out of their office, and initiate these conversations instead of waiting for the technician that comes in and says, I'm quitting. And you have to you have to be comfortable. You have to be willing to hear something that you don't want to hear. Because if you walk out to that technician, you ask him, hey, man, 
how come you how come you left the greasy paw prints on this car? How come you did this? You have to be willing to hear that technician look back at you and say, it's because you did this, whatever this is. And then you have to be willing to accept that criticism. And then the really hard part comes in because then you have to decide whether or not it's valid. Did I screw up? Did I did I favor Steve instead of Joe? Did I give Joe a job that I should have gave to Mark? How come I gave Mark three crap crappy jobs in a row? And you know, I managed one shop I managed, I had six techs, another time I had twenty-two. Wow. And wow. when you have six techs and you're dispatching to work, you're gonna screw somebody every once in a while. It's not intentional. Yeah. Well, sometimes it is. <laughs> but it's going to happen. And if you're really going to have that open door policy, if you're really going to head off these issues, then you need to have that conversation beforehand. And you have to be able to say, oh, you know what? You're right. I screwed up. And that's hard for a lot of people. It's hard for technicians. It's hard for service writers. It's hard for owners. It's hard for wives and husbands and kids. And it's hard for everybody. But if you can't have that conversation, if you can't accept that you own part of the problem, well, then you're just going to, the circles are just going to keep repeating. You're going to look at that technician. You're going to say, your toolbox has wheels on it. Get out of here. And then you're going to bring in the next one. And then six months later, nine months later, this the process repeats. I had an uncle who had three ex-wives. My dad looked at me one time when I was a teenager and he said, you know, it's probably sometimes you need to look and see what the common denominator is. <laughs> I don't think all, all three of those women were crazy. It might have been Uncle Marv. Yeah. And, you know, if you're a manager and you're running through technicians, there's a good chance that you might be the problem. If you're a technician and you're running through shops, there's a good chance you might be the problem. It's hard. Like I said, it's, to me, I, I really think it's human nature. And there's just most people just aren't comfortable with conflict. It's the same thing at the service counter. You know, it's hard to have that conversation with a customer. Oh, yeah, we thought it might have been a spark plug. Nope, you need an engine. Or, yeah, we went on a test drive. Your timing belt broke and bent all the valves. These are not easy conversations to have. Yeah, it's the conflict. And then, like you're saying, the that rebuttal, dealing with your shortcomings and managing those expectations, both sides, both sides, managing expectations of keep picking on uh, pay because it's easy. The technician finally either gets, we'll just say in this case, he or she gets pulled aside by the manager, the owner. You know, what's going on, man? You know, hours are down or whatever. And it's like, geez, you know, looking at cost of living increases, looking at so-and-so's making this, seeing some of these ads in the, you know, whatever venue they're hiring at this, that, these signing bonuses. It's like, you know, gosh, dang it. I'd like to make more. And then the shop owner responding, and I'm not illogically either, Okay, but you're spending twenty minutes in a day in the the restroom. Your hours are dropping. Not, you know, they haven't plateaued. They're not in, improving. They're dropping. 
and now you as a, you know, the one asking for more money have to process this and go, okay, you know, how much of this is on me? And then, you know, maybe another response by the shop owner would be, you know, I need you to be more um, assertive. You know, I was more of a self-starter. And that to me is an interesting response because maybe that's not the personality type. <laughs> right? You're asking them to do something that's not really them, but that could be used as kind of hold them down a little bit. And I, I don't mean it so maliciously, like <laughs> hold you down. It kind of but is though. I yeah, mean, but it's kind of that managing expectations, right? Yep. And, you know, this is where, you know, we're back to clear lines of communication and managing expectations. What do I expect from you? What do you expect from me? And so many problems that I think that people run into, it's because they have the different expectations from the beginning. Or maybe the expectations were clear in the beginning, but then times change. Take pay. Right now, we're in a situation, we're in a market where pay is going up rapidly. If I hired Frank at $80,000 a year, two years ago or three years ago, that was great money. He was really happy. Everybody was, everything was good. Well, now Frank's buddy, um, Fred, goes and he's got a job for 110. Now Frank's like, I'm getting screwed. Yep. And I'm sitting here like, you know what? You're still doing the same thing that you did for 80,000. <laughs> I mean, you're not, you're not actually adding any value here. But that's being short-sighted on my part because it's not taking into account that the outside factors changed. You have to be able to, and it's easy, really, really, really easy to not, to get kind of a, a tunnel vision of what's happening in our shop. And you can lose track of what's going on in the outside world sometimes. I knew it, you know, going back to my days as a technician, I wouldn't, I didn't realize that I was underpaid sometimes until I went to look for another job. Yeah. Because you know what you know, it's, it's what you know. And until you, it's that old phrase, you don't know what you don't know. Well, then all of a sudden when I found out that, oh, wait a minute, I can get five bucks more an hour. And then I walk into the manager's office and say, hey, I can, for certifications I've got for what I'm doing, I, I'm worth this. And I actually had one manager look at me and look me in the eye one time and tell me I have never given a technician a raise. Really? You're at flat rate, you want to make more money? Go build more hours. Oh. I looked at him, I said, All right. I quit. Walked <laughs> yeah. out. He goes, he goes, What do you mean you quit? I said, I said, I quit. I'll I'll work till the end of the week for you, but that's it. At which point he then yelled, and then he yelled at me, You're fired. <laughs> like, all right. <laughs> Back my <laughs> at that point in my life, I had a toolbox that could be loaded into the back of a pickup truck, and back my truck in there and loaded up at two thirty in the afternoon and went home. It's just an interesting response on his part because that you would think then there has to be some number, whether calculated or arbitrary, that they have set that if you hit, you're going to be making whatever amount of money. We'll just assume it's very good. But even if you're a stellar tech, you're going to hit a certain amount production and there's no more going up. You can't work faster. Uh, or at least it can't ethically go up. 
there's a there's a plateau. There's a, a point where people are what they are. When I was at my peak as a flat rate tech, I was a 50 to 60 hour a week guy in a 40 hour a week. Any more than that, mistakes got made. Now, as a one man shop, I, 25 hours a week is my top. Yeah. Because, you know, there's, you got to answer the phones, you got to do all this other stuff. Yeah. And it's really hard to be efficient when you're going in six different directions. That's what I am. That's what I can do. So when I was a tech and if I was at 55, you know, I'm hitting my 55 to 60 hours a week. And if a manager tells me that, you know, the only way I can get more money is to turn more hours. Well, I'm left with two options at that point. One is to, well, three options. One is I can quit. I have to either, <laughs> you know, I almost don't even want to say this because it's so unethical, but it's a real world. Um, I have to sharpen my pencil yep. and I have to either start finding in the dealer world when you were dealing warranty time, there was always places where you could overlap, places where you could get extra dollars. Whether it was ethical, well, it's not whether it wasn't ethical, but you can, you start tacking on labor ops, and then that's how you suddenly bill out ninety hours in a forty-hour week, or you have to start just really, really concentrating entirely on speed and give up on quality, which means that when the car comes in for a check engine light and it's got a it's got a cylinder number one misfire. Uh, it needs it needs plugs, wires, cap rotor, fuel filter, fuel in, <laughs> fuel injection service. You know, while we're here, we better service the transmission, the differential, and transfer case. Oh yeah, those brakes. You know, they're down to six millimeters. We need to do those. Yep. And then now all of a sudden, now you can get up to that. You know, that eighty hours a week again. That's bullshit. I agree, especially if you're already producing. And a very acceptable level. And then that it sounds like it does it discounts the system's effect on those production hours. You know, there's there's certain shops you're never, ever, ever going to break 40 hours. It cannot be done. You may be lucky to break three 30 hours because the, the processes, the systems in place, the organization, whatever, is just never going to perpetuate that kind of production. Right. And and then that they set the levels because they sat in a you know a twenty group or went to a training class that's like, no, you you know, your best tech should be turning out, you know, forty five, fifty five, whatever the you know, whatever the number is uh a week. Okay, well here's the levels and if you hit that, you're gonna make, you know, six figures a year. Oh yeah, you're never gonna hit it. You it's impossible. Oh, I guess I always struggle with that stuff that yeah, maybe um, maybe that's pessimistic on my part that management doesn't always look at that portion. You know, it's kind of like here's the system that rewards this performance. Now it's up to you to do it. Yeah, and it's a this is always the this is the problem that I have with the flat rate system is that it's always more, 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 more. There's never enough. If you turn 60 hours, somebody wants 65. You turn 65, they want 70. And it shouldn't be like that. You should be able to go to work and know that, you know, I'm going to work 40 hours and this is what I'm going to produce. And 
that should be it. You know, and if somebody plateaus it, let's just say 40 hours a week, somebody's 100% efficient, then they should get a cost of living raise at the very minimum from one year to the next. They shouldn't be falling backwards by doing the same thing that they were doing. And yet that's what happens too often. And it's not just our industry. That happens all over yep. the yep. all over exactly. all over the world. But that's one of the things. I mean, that's what makes people angry. That's what makes employees go look for another job. Is what makes people feel unappreciated when you know, and there's no reason for it. You know, there's no, you know, obviously the manager that I told the story about, that was kind of an extreme case because that was, <laughs> that was shocking to me and I'd already bounced around a few times. So um not quite sure what I would find shocking nowadays. <laughs> a, a big pile of pennies in your driveway. Yeah. You know what? Honestly, even that didn't really shock me. <laughs> <laughs> I worked at a dealership where the owner's kid broke in one night, stole the petty cash to buy cocaine. So yeah, the shop, I, it was a dealership that uh, I was, I guess I would say interning or apprenticing at because I was still in school. They were telling me a story about one uh, New Year's Eve that there was a tech that they did not like. And after he left the New Year's Eve party, they screwed a grease zerk into his toolbox and filled that sucker up. I've heard of that. I've never seen it. I didn't get to see it. They just told me about it. And amongst many other things... They had done glued yeah, all the glued all the handsets to the phones. So the next working day, they're trying to answer the phone, and they come. Yeah, and we wonder why people don't want to get into this industry. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. It's some of the stories are funny. A lot of them, a lot of them aren't, but a lot of a lot of characters. Um, oh, I know, right? You know, I one uncle who's a machine shop, another uncle who did construction and my dad owned a liquor store. So, you know, growing up, I always heard all kinds of crazy stories. You know, my, my point of view is probably a little odd sometimes. Wow. We just talked for an hour. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we solved anything. No, no different than my day to day. Don't solve anything, (laughs) but yeah, I really, really appreciate you coming on. I, I hope we can have you on again. Would be great. Yep. I, uh, I'd be willing Awesome. Well, take care. It's Nathan Bryant with uh, Auto Visions, Englewood, Colorado. Well, thank you so very much, sir. Take it easy. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.